And Lord God, never have I felt less worthy to preach a sermon. The subject of our sermon today is vast, exalted, transcendent beyond thought. Words will fall short, mine will fall far short. Yet it is by your words preached that you bring us to faith, growth, and blessing. And Paul said, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So I pray, grant sufficiency by your hand that Christ may be exalted as we consider your word together and what it portrays to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you see the title I gave the sermon is Our Sine Qua Non, which probably by now at least all of you know is Latin for without which nothing. It, it means the essential ingredient. That's uh, a simple concept. Like for instance, if you wanted to make a ham sandwich, what would be the sine qua non of a ham sandwich? Correct. <laughs> so we're talking about what is our sine qua non, but as I said, that's not the real title. Uh, the reason why I didn't publish the real title is if you had read it and if it were on the board unexplained, it would surely be overdramatic and over-theatrical and misunderstood. So I will tell you the real title and immediately explain it to you. The real title of the sermon is My Last Sermon? Question mark, or What Would I Preach as My Last Sermon? And I title it that not because I expect this is my last sermon. I don't expect this to be my last sermon, although always only God knows. But I, I hope to return and to continue uh, Matthew with you and hopefully to preach many more sermons to you. I, uh, I'm not, there's nothing I'm not telling you that makes, you know, what, what is a sermon title telling us? The reason why I thought of that title is this. I was thinking, well, if this were my last sermon, which I don't believe it is, only God knows, but I don't believe it is, but if I knew that I only had one more sermon to preach in, in uh, your presence and to leave ringing in your ears, what should be the focus of that sermon? What should it be about? Suppose uh, after my leaving, people were to say, you know, uh, Philip's preached here for nine years and I can't for the life of me remember a single sermon he preached. Okay, the Spurgeon ones were pretty good, but I can't remember any other sermon he preached except that last one, and I can't get that last one out of my head. What would I want that last one to be about? What should it be about? And so you think, well, you, you say, well, the last one should be about the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you know. <laughs> I'd like to know how that turns out. Well, I'll tell you, it turns out really well, <laughs> especially for us. It turns out gloriously. But what, what else? My first thoughts were, well, I, I would preach about things that are central needs that are, that are important that this church needs to be reminded of and left with, like the centrality of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the need to stay faithful to Scripture and make that the center of what we do. And of course, that would be perfectly necessary and that would be a good thing to consider. But then I immediately thought, no, that isn't really what I would preach about. What I would want to preach if I knew I only had one more sermon to preach, which I don't, but if I did... I'd want to preach Christ. I would want to preach Christ one more time for all I was worth. And you might think, well, but wouldn't it be good to preach the law of God? Yes, it would be good to preach the law of God, but where would we be before the law of God if it weren't for Christ? The law of God would condemn us and damn us and leave us without hope. You think, well, shouldn't you preach the Father? It's the Father who sent Christ. It's the Father who initiates the plan. 
Well, yes, it would be good to preach the Father, but where would we be before the Father if it weren't for Christ? For one thing, he wouldn't be our Father. He would simply be our judge, and we could look to him with nothing but terror, guilt, and despair. Okay, you say that wouldn't be good. Uh, How about if you just preach the Holy Spirit? He's the one who gives us life. He's the one who gives us hope. He's the comforter. Uh, Yes, but we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit if it weren't for Christ. The Holy Spirit is a gift of the Father to Christ in his promise in charging him with our redemption. That after he had achieved our redemption, part of what he achieved for us was the gift of the Holy Spirit to pour out on God's people. Say, okay, I see all that, so perhaps if you just did preach about the Bible, well, that would be a good thing too, but what would the Bible be without Christ? Christ says the Bible all points to him. The Old Testament points forward to him. He's the center. The Bible would be a a sad, despairing, uh, terrifying book if Christ weren't the heart of it. No, no, uh, I would preach Christ. If it really were my last, it would be a very long sermon. It would be very sentimental. I would thank my wife. I'd express my love for my family. I'd thank all of you, the people who've shown such patience and such grace to me, and uh, what a joy it's been to work with you. That would all be in the, in the sermon. But, but really the focus, since I'm really talking about what would the focus of the sermon be, it would be Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'd want to preach everything if it was just I only had one more go. I'd want to preach everything. But really, if I preach Jesus Christ, I'm preaching everything. Because he's the sine qua non. Without him, nothing. And the other side of that coin is, with him, everything. So let's turn to Christ together. And let's consider him in what will be a whirlwind tour, but just one more glance together at the greatness that is Christ. First, Roman numeral one, considering simply how magnificent he is. How magnificent he is. And we'll look at that from a few angles. How magnificent he is. And no sermon can begin to do justice to that. But we will use Scripture uh, because only through Scripture do we know Christ. First, we will together get a glimpse of His worth. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 when you can, please. A glimpse of His worth. Now, here's, here's this writer writing this congregation of, of converted Jews who are being tempted to fall back to Judaism and the law. And days of persecution have sparkled a bit, and they are coming and so what is he going to direct them to? to? To keep them moving forward. To steal them in these dark, troubling times that are coming. What is he going to put before their mind in his closing words? Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 1, he says, We have this cloud of witnesses testifying from the Old Testament. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking, the the verb aphorontes, looking away to Jesus, looking away from the world, the flesh, the devil, all of our troubles, looking away, fixing our gaze on Jesus who begins our faith and perfects our faith. And some of you might argue, well, no, it really just means the author, like the pioneer and the the concluder of our faith. Well, either way, just you're looking to Jesus start to finish, he says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility. So whatever life, whatever the world, the flesh, the devil throws your way, he says, look to Jesus. What a magnificent person Jesus must be if he's one to whom this writer can direct the attention of people headed for dark, trying, terrifying times. But he's not alone in lifting up the worth of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus. Uh, Look at Colossians chapter 1 with me. And there's going to be some fast flipping, and if, if, if that's not easy for you, just note the verses down, look at them later, follow along the best you can. I don't want you to get lost in your Bible. But Colossians chapter 1, and we look first at verse 18, speaking of, of Christ, Paul says, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, literally, the Greek text says that he might come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. And then uh, drop your eyes down to verses 27 and 28. What must this person be who God intends to have first place in everything? In verses 27 and 28, Paul, uh, we just read, he speaks of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Literally, the Greek text says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim. It's not a new sentence. Whom we proclaim. We don't merely preach about Christ. We preach Christ. Christ is not just an interesting topic we like to discuss or explain. But he fills our preaching. He's the substance and the reality of our preaching. We preach Christ. In a way, Christ is in the preaching. Because this is how God reaches out to people. This is how Christ reaches out to people. Not by sights or sounds or smell. But by the, the words of God. Whom we preach warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ. All of his effort goes into the preaching of Christ to every last person under his care because that is the only way, the preaching of Christ, by which we can come to our God-ordained end, to to maturity, to perfection. And then in chapter 2 again, he says of his desire that believers' hearts be knit together so as to know the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ in whom are hidden these treasures. It's not enough simply to listen to his teaching or to repeat his teaching. We must come to him. Those treasures are hidden in Him. They are found in a relationship with Him. So again, He's he's not a noble character from the past we like to study. He's the living person in whom God puts, unveils His mystery and puts His treasures saying, they're yours if you come in Christ. They're yours if you come in Christ. That's where they're hidden. What a magnificent, worthy person. Paul preaches Him. And he preaches Him no matter what. Turn to Colossians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It starts with a C-O, but it's a different book. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, there there are, have been many winds of doctrine in the church saying that, well, if we want to reach our age, we've got to, we've got to um, contextualize. We've got to figure out what people want and then make a message that will give them what they want. Uh, Paul was blithely and serenely unconcerned with what people wanted because he knew what God had commanded and what people needed. And you see that in just a few words here. Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So does he bend their direction? Oh, no, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews 
and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. They want something else, but Paul knows what they need, and what they need is they need Christ. It'll offend them at first, but it's exactly who they need to hear about because of his great worth, because of his great worth. Public opinion is not worth that. The fads of man is not worth that. The eternal reality of Christ is worth that. And so, you know, in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we won't turn there, but you've heard it often enough. Uh, Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. He doesn't just get up and tell stories and share personal experiences and accomplishments and feelings. What we preach is not ourselves, Paul says, but who? Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves your slaves for Jesus' sake. He preaches Christ because only Christ is worth it. And think, we won't go there either just for time's sake. We've got a lot to look at together. But think of the throne room scenes that begin the, the book of Revelation. And after the, three letter, the seven letters to the three churches in chapters 2 and 3, in chapter 4 we have a heavenly throne room scene and God is seated on the throne. And around Him, angels and elders. And, and what do they do? They all fall on their faces before Him and they proclaim, you are worthy. But then look at the next chapter, chapter 5, when John weeps because there's none worthy to, to open the, this, uh, unseal this scroll. But the angel says, no, weep. The Lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And here stands a lamb as if slain, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do the elders and angels do at the sight of Christ? The exact same thing. They fall on their faces before Him. They worship Him. And they say, you are worthy. So what impresses heaven? What impresses angels? Who's the celebrity of heaven? It's Jesus Christ. I don't know how to say His worth better than that. He was the object to whom the writer to the Hebrews directed their attention. He is the substance of Paul's preaching no matter what people demand. And in heaven, He's the one before whom all fall in worship and proclaiming His glory. So, uh, Christ is worthy. That is a first indication of His magnificence. Now let's take a, a glance at His witnesses, those who witness to His magnificence. And in starting, I just remind you of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's this, this vision, word picture of, of a sol solitary soul being, the being of God, the infinite personal God, and everything that exists comes from His wisdom and His power, unaided without consultation. God creates what He creates, designs what He designs because He wants to. And yet then in verse 26, when it comes to the creation of man, we read, let us make man in our image. Now what's that? He's not talking to angels. He's not talking to any creature. He doesn't consult creatures about creation. So who's he talking to? Who, who's us? Who's with the Father? Well, turn to John chapter 1 with me. Gospel of John chapter 1. And you're familiar with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Oh, just It sounds like Genesis. In the beginning. But then he says, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh, so... Who is this divine person who's with the Father to whom He says us? It's the Word. It's the Logos. And if we weren't sure of that, verse 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made 
that was made. So, now, this is who he is in himself. I'm coming to the witnesses. This is who he is in himself. And he comes into relation in verse 14, relation to mankind. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, John saying, we probably on behalf of the apostolic band, we have seen him. We've eyeballed him in person. And as a witness of Christ, what did they see when they saw Christ? What is the word he uses? We beheld his what? His glory. Now, what does glory mean? Well, it's kind of a, I don't know a better word to describe the display of God's perfections. That's what it means. <laughs> it's, this is the best word I know to describe the display of God's perfections. It's, it's a brilliance. It's a radiance. There's no way to describe it except to say glory. And in Jesus, they see glory. They see the display of God's presence in the person of Jesus. Oh, but look more. He says, full of, of what now? Of grace and truth. Well, thank God for that. Thank God for that. God becomes a human being, shows God's glory, full of grace and truth. And John knew this person. He knew him personally. John loved Jesus. John was the closest person probably on earth to Jesus. At the Last Supper, he leans on Jesus' breast and asks him questions the others don't dare ask. John was very close to Jesus, and he writes this book as an eyewitness of Jesus. And in chapters 20 and 21, he says, I wrote this book. I mean, that Jesus did many other things, but I wrote what I wrote so that you might believe, and by believing you might have eternal life. I've written you enough so that you can know Jesus too. And in chapter 21, he says, if I tried to write everything Jesus did, the world wouldn't contain the books. Okay, so this is John. He was a witness of Jesus' glory incarnate here on earth in his time of humiliation. Oh, but look at another scene from John's life. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. And this other angle shows us something of the magnificence of Christ. Now, please don't try to guess where I'm going. Just look up for a second once you find Revelation 1. So, there's two ways to describe a person or a thing. One is directly... You know, say this guy's 5'10", he's got black hair, he's got green eyes or whatever. You're just describing him direct, directly. But another way is to describe a person by the impact he has. So I could say Bob Smith is 5'10", has black hair, green eyes. Or I could say Bob Smith walked into the room and everyone stopped talking. So I've described him two different ways, right? The second way is describing him by his impact. So... John has a vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, and the first thing he does is he describes what he sees. And he's seeing the glorified Christ now, not in his humiliation, but in his glory at the Father's right hand. And he does describe what he sees, and it's a pretty mind-blowing description. But then he also used the second method in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, that tells you something of the magnificence of Christ. This John, you can imagine him saying, I used to walk around with him. I used to lean on his chest, and that's who this was all this time? He sees him, and he's completely overwhelmed, and he thinks he's just done. 
He just collapses, and Jesus has to get him up and encourage him. These, these are just ways that witness to us the magnificence of Christ. And, and this one comes from a lover, but now let's look at a witness that comes from a hater, somebody who hated Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 26. And this is Paul giving his testimony. And Paul never has anything good to say about what he was uh, uh, before Christ. If, if we read it that way, we're misreading it. He speaks of himself as being the chief of sinners. And uh, look at what he says, uh, showing us his mindset in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There's a compact little statement saying, I was convinced it was my moral duty to oppose Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. I locked up people, and when they were put to death, I voted against them. Punished them often, verse 11, in forcing them to blaspheme, or trying to. And in raging fury, I persecuted them. And in fact, I was on my way to do more of just that, with permission from the priest, to do even more damage. But then verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things you, in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Was well, it any wonder that Paul so marveled that he should be able to preach Christ? He should preach this Christ whom he had opposed with everything he had and his whole heart. And now he appears to him and appoints him a witness. And he's overwhelmed. So now turn to Ephesians chapter 3, from which our text comes. I have translated for you in your outline. Just verse 8 is, To me, less than the least of all the holy ones was this grace given to tell the good news of the untrackable wealth of Christ. But let's read it with a little more context. Verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So, the stewardship is God's grace given to him. The stewardship he has is a grace gift of God, he says. And then verses 6 through 8. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, he just has to stop and say, because this just... He, can't, he just can never get over this. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul's a, Paul's a convert, and he never gets over the fact that of all people, God would entrust to him the high privilege and lofty calling of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. I was talking with somebody this week, and I forget the context we were talking about getting another job or something like that, and I just said, why, why would I want another job? I've got the best job in the world. 
Why would I say I've got the best job in the world? Is it, is it because of the wonderful people I get to serve with? That, that would be a good reason. Is it because of the scenic beauty of Houston, the majestic vistas and the wonderful traffic? Maybe not that so much. Uh, <laughs> but why would I say that? Because I get to preach Christ. You know, particularly in some of the earlier years here, I'd, I'd come up and I'd sit here and there were a lot of holes in, in the seats. And no, no, no pastor really wants to see that. It's not an encouraging sight. And then I would remind myself of the wonderful people bought with the blood of Christ that I get to, to serve and, and what a great privilege that is. And then I would remind myself and I get to preach Christ. I, career mess up, uh, with all of my regrets and all my mistakes and all of the miseries that I'm conscious of and, and God is more conscious of, and yet I get to preach Christ. That's as good as it gets. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. That's the magnificence of Christ. I get to preach Him and His untrackable wealth. Finally, a glimmer of His wonders. And I'm just going to whisk through uh, Philippians chapter 2 and just lift out just a glimmer of His wonders that these verses show us. As Paul urges the Philippians to have the same mental attitude as Christ Jesus and then he holds before them the example of Christ Jesus in his incarnation. And first we see his deity in verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among you which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, I translate though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In the form of God, meaning the representation of the real nature, that he really was God. And if you saw him, you saw God. This is his deity. Deity means the quality of being God. And if you ever weren't God, you never will be God. If you ever are God, you'll always be God. That, that's the nature of God. And he was, and yet he didn't count the privilege of that as something to be clung to as opposed to the next thing. Verse 7, his humanity. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so don't get tied up, emptied himself of what? What did he give up? It's not that kind of emptying. He didn't empty himself of anything. You don't see that in this verse. It's himself he emptied. And how did he empty himself? By taking a human nature on. It was, if you will, a subtraction by addition. That he took on the nature of a finite creature so that now you had the one person with two natures. The nature of God, but the nature of a fully human being. And he took that on, and that was a great lowering. That was a great step down for this one who existed in the form of God. And, and what was going on here? Well, we read third of his humility in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. But this was the mission of the Father. And so he humbled himself, and he did that mission. He humbled himself to the point of this shameful, cursed death on the cross, bearing sin. His deity, his humanity, his humility, and then his authority, verses 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So uh, this is his authority, and in those same verses, we also see his glorious unity, just from a different angle. 
Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His unity. What do I mean by unity? I mean He's not two persons. He's not a human person, a divine person. He didn't have two will. He, he had, pardon me, he, he wasn't two persons. He was one person with two natures. That's what I mean to say. He was one person with two natures, with a human nature and a divine nature. But He's just Jesus. He's not two Jesuses. He's one Jesus. And then finally, we've seen His, his deity, His humanity, His humility, His authority, His unity. But one more thing, turn to Hebrews 10, His perfect atonement. This chapter is just worth living in, but it's a wonderful chapter. But Hebrews chapter 10 starts by saying that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. As Paul says in Colossians 2, uh, the diet and the calendar, these are just shadows, not the form of the things. And verse 1, again Hebrews 10, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Why? Well, because if these, if these offerings could have done that, then they would have ceased. One offering would have hit the bullseye finally, and they could have stopped offering animals. He says, but no, they're offered again and again, year by year, serving as a reminder. You've still got sins to atone for. You've still got sins to atone for. And so why? Because verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It wasn't a bull or a goat that sinned. A bull or a goat dying for me can't redeem me from my sin. A human being's got to die for me, but it's got to be a flawless human being of infinite worth if he's going to reconcile. With no sins of his own to die for and a life of infinite worth if he's going to redeem me, a single sinner, from his sin. The blood of bulls and goats can never do that. So you say, well, I remember it saying that, that the people who offered them were forgiven. Yes, they were, they were forgiven when they offered them, and then they needed to do it again. And they needed to do it again, and they needed to do it again, and every year in the Day of Atonement and so forth. Why could they give any forgiveness? Well, because these were all pointing forward to a great sacrifice. And we read of that in verses 11 and following. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You see that language of futility. How many ways in one sentence does this master of, of rhetoric depict the futility of the priesthood? Every priest stands. Every priest, the best of them, stands. What can he never do? Sit. Because his job's never done. Stands daily. Day in, day out. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Ah, but verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. He did what no priest could do because He did what no priest could do. He offered a perfect sacrifice and so He could sit down because there would never be another sacrifice for Him to offer. And so, uh, verse 14, by a single offering, He's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, his deity, his humanity, his humility, his authority, his unity, and the perfection of his atonement. Are these not wonders that show Christ's magnificence? And it's just a glimmer. We've just done this, driven past as it were on a highway, and just seen them driving past them, and yet aren't they enough 
to persuade you what a magnificent person this Jesus is? There's no match. There's no comparison. How magnificent He is. But secondly, I would preach to you how deeply we need Him. Roman numeral 2, how deeply we need Him. You say, oh, it's all very well to preach this magnificent person. I guess you make a point. He sounds pretty great. What does it have to do with me? Well, first we've got the measure of the law, and that's a good place to start. Because anybody who thinks that God's standard is how well, what a great job we've done of following our heart, I, I have some bracing news for you. That is the gospel of Hollywood. That is not the gospel of God. Uh, we follow our heart is a sure way to be damned because our hearts are deceptive. They're, they're, they're sick. They're incurably sick. So our hearts will never lead us in God's way. How do you know God's way? How would you know? Wouldn't it be great to know? If so many students ask, what, what's the passing grade in this test? Well, the passing grade is 100. Oh, my. Well, what is the test? Oh, the test is God's law. Ah, well, uh, how, how are we doing? You say, uh, first of all, why don't you list off all, all of God's laws? You say, well, I can't. I don't really know them all. Oh, well, then you've already failed. You've already failed. It hasn't been important enough to even know what God's will is. But you, say, you might say, oh, no, I went to Sunday school. I remember there's two commandments. Okay, not exactly right, but Jesus did say that to sum up all the commandments. And the first is, mm, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor. Well, I treat people pretty well. I've never killed anybody. Okay, that's the second one. Even granting your point, let's go back to the first. You already told me you don't love God with all your mind. You don't even know his laws. You say, okay, well, I'll start right now. Oh, I'm sorry, it's too late. (laughs) Judgment started the moment you were conceived. And you've never yet had a moment when you've kept God's law perfectly. So what does God's law do? Oh, only one thing, it condemns us. Viewed that way, viewed as how we, we, be, we make ourselves acceptable to God, all God's law can do is condemn us and set a standard that none of us can meet. That we have no hope in the law. The law won't do anything for us. We need to be saved. We don't just need to be taught. We don't just need to be directed. We need to be saved. The measure of the law shows us that for a certainty. But also the measure of the prophets. Now here I'm using the word prophets like the Hebrew Old Testament does. Um, The prophets are are both what we think of as the prophets, but also most of the historical books are called the prophets. So bringing that all in, we see in those prophets holy persons uh, by the thousands, right? There are many, many holy persons uh, who are held up in one way or another as an example. Many of them, it's true, cautionary examples. Never do this. (laughs) But some of them are positive examples of faith and bravery and holiness. Ah, yes, uh, they have that in common. Here's another thing they have in common. None of them is sinless. And none of them can save us. None of them is sinless. You say, well, not even Adam? Well, no, Adam kind of brought sin into our race, so not him, no. What about Abraham? No, the Bible makes clear that he was saved by grace through faith just like us. And though Paul says, yes, he he believed the promise of God, in his faith he wavered and he sinned. Moses has to show a pagan rebuking Abraham for deceiving him and exposing his wife to sexual misuse. Uh, Yes, Abraham sinned just like the rest of us. And you say, well, then Moses surely, uh, well, you skip the, the father's. 
What about Jacob and the sons of Israel? Surely they're all perfect. Oh no, that's, a rough, that's rough reading. <laughs> reading about that family in Genesis, that's rough reading. No, they can't save us. They got, they got no salvation to give. Oh, well, you said then talk about Moses. Moses was a great man. Yes, Moses was a great man. Did he sin? Well, tell me this. Did he enter the promised land? Why didn't he enter the promised land? Because he sinned. Because he didn't, he didn't honor God. He didn't glorify God. He acted in, un, in a spasm of unbelief. So no, Moses can't save us. And Moses needs saving. And you could go on and on. You could say, well, wait a minute. I, I don't remember ever reading that Isaiah sinned. Isaiah's prophecy is absolutely wonderful. Oh, I'm with you. I, I don't remember ever reading uh, a narrative of his sin. But I do remember re- reading Isaiah chapter 6. Where in fact, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. John tells us that that's Christ he sees in Isaiah 6. The Lord lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. And the uh, seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. And what does Isaiah say on this vision? Does Isaiah say, ah, what a nice little plum for me. I imagine I've been invited here because of what an excellent man I am. Do you recall Isaiah saying that? What does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. No, Isaiah was not without sin. Isaiah sinned. He has no salvation to give us. You say, well, Daniel, I don't remember reading any sins of Daniel. I don't either. But I do remember reading Daniel chapter 9, where he confesses, we have sinned. And he says that about six different ways. We. Now, I take it that Daniel means we the same way I do. When I say we, what I mean is us. <laughs> and Paul, Daniel is confessing his sin. No, no, you can look at all these people and know this. They all have this in common. They're all sinners. And they all need saving. And they have no salvation to give us. They need saving themselves. Let me say, well, what about the, the historical portrait? What about the, the nation of Israel? Oh, yes, you read uh, of God giving the nation many gifts, making them amazing promises and and sketching out thunderous threats as to what would happen if they didn't walk with him yes yes mighty acts of God for this nation who he picked out from all the earth to to be his own people and how did that go how did that go Uh, about like this right both nations, but, well, for, first of all, it split because of sin. And then both nations went into exile. And they came limping back, humbled, humiliated, decimated. And they built a temple. And the, the people who'd seen the previous temple, which was torn down, what did they make of the new temple? Well, they wept. And that's some of the last things we see in the Old Testament. So if the Old Testament is all you have, and you've just got what those books have, you end end with a sad sigh and an unfinished story. Salvation has not been accomplished. Salvation and, and the solving of our human problem has not been achieved. Not by this nation, not by anybody in this nation. Ah, but what about the hopeful predictions? Number three. Yes, yes, that's what I want to look at. Think of uh, when the first sin happened in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, does God say, well, this is certainly bad, but I have a program of self-improvement by which you can rectify all this. 
I have a way you can work your way back into my favor and undo all the damage that you've done. Do you recall reading that in Genesis 3? You do not. Why? Because they're dead. God said in so many words, when you eat, you will die. They ate, they died. The process began instantly. The bodies took a few centuries to hit the dirt, but they were dead. So uh, riddle me this, what can a, a dead person do to improve his lot? <laughs> what, 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 what are the, the, the capacity for a dead person for self-improvement? I, I've told you, it's been a while though, of a funny commercial I saw years ago of a, of a public health announcement in a comedy show saying that, you know, X many people die every minute. You might have been one of those people. Know the warning signs of death, you know, and then it lists off like a public service announcement, you know, how to tell if maybe you've died. And, and one is, you know, um, increasing difficulty maintaining hygiene and uh, lack of interest in activities and sports. And then the final one is the unexplained presence of coins on your eyelids. Well, the thing is, we're all dead. What, what can you do? Oh, well, of course, they in this commercial, they say, well, if any of these signs are true of you, write in for this booklet. So I'm dead, now what? Well, but the thing is, you're dead, now nothing. And so no, God does not come saying, here's how you can solve your problem. They have no solution for their problem. So what does God say? Well, he's obliged to say nothing, but in his great grace and wisdom, he says to the serpent, I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between you and her, your seed and her seed. And it is he himself, the Hebrew is emphatic, he, a particular seed of the woman, who will crush your head. So salvation will not be wrought by Adam and Eve. It will not be accomplished by a, progra a, pro a, a program of works, but an individual will bring salvation. Um, a human being, seed of the woman, because it takes a human being to save human beings, but it will come by a work of God. And so, uh, towards, further on towards the end of the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, you have the prediction of filling out what this will be in the death of the suffering servant dying for his people, making atonement for sin, final atonement like Hebrews talks about, and us being justified by the knowledge of him. So yes, the prophets point forward to one who will save us as a work of God and nothing as a work of ourselves. And who is that pointing to? The magnificent Jesus Christ. How deeply we need him though. We have no salvation to offer. Salvation is not possible for us to achieve. We need to be saved. The law can't save us. Uh, all these fine people can't save us. We need him deeply. But let me show you finally from another uh, unexpected angle. We've seen the measure of the law, the measure of the prophets. Now look at the measure of a prayer. And for this prayer, turn to the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26 couple of chapters before the very end. But this is, in some ways, I think this is the best measure of just how desperately we need Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew has shown us God's absolute delight in Jesus. This is my chosen one. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, my beloved. And here is this beloved one. And we see in verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Wow, he should never have felt that. Why would he feel that? 
He has nothing to... And he's never said anything like this. He's, he's felt compassion for those in need, but now it's he who's sorrowful, even to death. What's going on here? Read the next verse. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Oh, you think of the father hearing this prayer from his beloved son. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Do you think if there had been any other way to accomplish salvation, do you think the father wouldn't have immediately said, there is one. We don't need to do this. Do you think anything could have kept God from saying that? If, wait a minute, I think I've hit on, if I give them this kind of law, they can work their way out of this. I think maybe if we just give them a little more time, they'll evolve into this. No, no. God knows everything. His intelligence, His wisdom is infinite. Jesus says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And what is heaven's answer? Silence. Why? Because there's no other way. How deeply do we need Jesus? That God the Father and God the Son found no other way to save us than by the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, he, he goes on to say in verses 53 and 54, don't you think I could call for legions of angels to deliver me? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So, how magnificent He is. How magnificent He is. How deeply we need Him. And finally, how wonderfully we have Him. How wonderfully God gives Him to us. Let me just break this down in a few parts. First, we read in Scripture, Scripture teaches us the Father gave us to Christ. And I speak as a Christian to Christians. Why are we Christians? Why are we believers? Because the Father gave us to Christ. Turn to John chapter 6. Just follow the progression of what our Lord Jesus teaches here. John chapter 6, first verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. So all of those who the Father gives to Christ will come to Christ, and they will come because the Father has given them to Christ. Their coming does not cause him to give them, do you see? It's his giving that causes them to come. And every one of those Jesus keeps. That all is God's will. The sovereign gift of this people to Christ is his will, and the sovereign keeping of these people is his will. But read on more. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So now we see that all of those the Father gives and only those the Father gives come to Christ and he keeps every last one of them. So it's the Father's gift to Christ. You say, I'm a Christian today. Why are you Christian today? Because you're so smart? Because you made such great decisions? This is not what Jesus teaches. The reason why you're a Christian today is because the Father gave you to Christ. You came to Christ because the Father gave you to Christ. And it's a testimony to the Father's gracious gift. In fact, look at more what Jesus says in chapter 17. 
His high priestly prayer to the Father. Verse 2, John 17, 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. So this subset of humanity that the Father gave to Christ, all of whom come to Christ, the Father appointed that the Son would give all of those eternal life. And if you say, well, but I think that's just everybody. Well, if, if you think that, Jesus didn't think that. Verse 9, He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So this subset of the world who the Father gives to Christ are those who come to Christ, who he prays for, who he keeps. And look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. God's, Christ's people are his Father's gift to him. And Paul tells us even more in Ephesians chapter 1, something we studied very closely as a church. Turn there, Ephesians chapter 1. I just stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Paul writing to these, uh, this uh, church says, Blessed be, verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Okay, well, what did I do to deserve that? Um, nothing. Verse, three, verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, uh, as I explained when we went through that, the, the idea is chose us to be in Him. He selected us and gave us to Christ, as we read in John. He chose us to be in Him. When did He do this? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So He saw the mass of fallen sinners having decreed the fall. He saw humanity fallen and dead in sin. And of that mass, He selected a subset to be in Christ. And then verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself His sons according to the purpose of His will, not mine, to the praise of His glorious grace, not my good decisions, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. So see, a, a work of God, a gracious gift of God, you belong to Christ because the Father gave you to Him. And again, underscoring this, He does in so many ways, but look at chapter 2, verse 10. He's, he said at the start of the chapter, we're dead till God made us alive. How did I do that? Well, I didn't. I was dead. So how did that happen? Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are His workmanship. We're His making, the Greek says. We're something He made, and if that isn't clear enough, having been created in Christ Jesus. Now, How did I have the good sense to create myself in Christ Jesus? I did not. It's a sovereign act of God who, as Paul says again and again, alone gets the praise of the glory of His grace. The Father gave us to Christ. Secondly, Christ gave Himself for us. Christ gave Himself to and for us. Galatians chapter 2. Just jot it down or turn there as you wish. Galatians 2, uh, verse 19, Paul says... For through the law, let me just give you a very literal translation uh, on the fly from the Greek text. For I, through the law, to the law, died. <laughs> so by the instrumentality of the law, I died, and I died to the law that I might live to God. 
With Christ have I been crucified, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And what I now live in the flesh, by faith I live in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Father gave us to Christ. Christ gave himself for us and to us. Paul does not simply say, well, what a nice thing he did out there. But he says, no, the the life I live, I live because of what Christ did. He didn't simply offer this and then I was smart enough to make use of it. It's something he did. It's the work of God. I no longer live, but I've been crucified with Christ and I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself for me. And what a wonderful thing that Paul could do. You know that Paul was not uh, one of these, you know, just me and Jesus, that's all I care about. He, he served the church. He loved the church. He gave his life for the church too in serving Christ. And yet he, he can say, though it, you, it's not true to say that, that God only loved one person. You must say that God, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, as Ephesians 5 says. But if he loved the church and I'm in the church, then what does that mean? He loved me. He loved all of us and he loved each of us. And, and as I pointed out, God is infinite. And so in that way, God can do what he does for the whole mass of his people, but he can do it for each of those people as if they were the only people. Because that's what being infinite means. You can give everything you do all your attention. <laughs> See, just like, just like with us, except totally different. You know, you think you can multitask? That's wonderful. I have trouble monotasking. But God can omnitask. God does everything and knows everything like each thing is the only thing he has to do and he can give it all his attention. And so he can say, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. The Father gave us to Christ. Christ gave himself for us and to us. The Father gave Christ to and for us. Letter C, the Father gave Christ to and for us. Romans 8.32 If you can, uh, turn there and look at it. Oh, such a great chapter. I I hope I preach that to you someday. I would love to. So many things I want to do. So many things for you, with you. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, I I know that a great many Christians, maybe even the majority of Christians, don't see everything that's in that verse. But slow down and think about it in the context of Romans 8. We've just talked about the golden chain of redemption. That God uh, chooses us, foreknows us, foreordains us, calls us, glorifies us. And then, and all things work together for our good, and nothing can part us from His love. All that's in this section. And here in verse 32, here's what He says. I'm looking at the Greek text, and I'll just render it very literally. For even his own son he did not spare. He he who his own son did not spare, but by contrast, on behalf of all of us, gave him over, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So God's gift of Christ for his people shows that he will give all things, which means all saving graces, Anything that is a need for me to have a relationship with God is a gift from God. What do I need to have a relationship with God? Well, I need a Savior. God did that in giving Jesus. Is that all I need? Well, no, I need to repent and have faith. Oh, God gives that. He freely gives all things 
for those for whom he gave his son. He gives repentance, he gives faith, and he gives all that follows and all that accompanies it. So in giving Christ, you must know, never forget, we must know, God gives what is dearest to him. He gives his son. He doesn't hold him back. And in giving his son, he also gives all things. And, and the verb is a word that literally means that he, he graciously gives. He freely gives. He graciously gives. Karizomai. So, the Father gave Christ to and for us. And finally, the Spirit glorifies Christ to us. The Spirit glorifies Christ to us. I'll just translate for you John 16, verses 13 and 14. John 16, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, But when that one comes, the Spirit of truth, he will guide you in all truth, or all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatsoever things he will hear, he will speak, and the things coming he will report to you. For that one will glorify me, because he will receive from what is mine and will report to you. Now, this is a promise made in the first instance to the apostles. This, this promise is to guide them infallibly into truth. That's why we have an inerrant New Testament. But we benefit from what they do. When, when we're reading the words that the Holy Spirit gave them here and the truth that he led them into, what is the purpose of that? Why did he give those words? Uh, look again what Jesus says. What does he say? He will glorify me. So, the Holy Spirit works in us to glorify Jesus to us. When we read Scripture, the Holy Spirit wants to, it works to, I should say, to glorify Jesus to us. That's His ministry. So this is all the work of God, and it's all to the glory of God, and it all centers on Jesus Christ, the Magnificent One, the One we so deeply need, the Father gloriously gives to us. This is how I want to preach Christ to you. See how magnificent he is. See how deeply we need him. But also see how freely and graciously the Father gives us to him. He gives us to him. Christ gives himself to us. The Father gives Christ for us. And the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ to us. What's the, what's the focus then of the Father in us? It's on Christ. Giving us to Christ. Giving Christ for us. Glorifying Christ to us. So, what is our sine qua non? As Christians, as people, what is that without which nothing? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our sine qua non. And if I knew a sermon was my last sermon, I would preach Christ in that sermon. I would exalt him to you for all I was worth. I would want you to join me in, in being left dazzled by the glory and the beauty and the magnificence of Christ. Uh, I would want you to join me in being crushed and humbled by how deeply we need Christ. And I would want you with me to be exalted and filled with hope and joy at how graciously and wonderfully God has given Christ to us and given Christ to us and given us to Christ. Now, all of that I say only to the born-again believers here, but I say it to all of the born-again believers here. But I also think of those who, who come and have not yet trusted in Christ. In that sermon, I would want you too to be dazzled with the glory of Christ and see what a magnificent Savior He is and how deeply we need Him. And I would want you to see how deeply you need Him. And I would want you to waste not another second in fleeing to Him, baffled as to why you took so long to do it. Come to Christ, trust in Him, throw yourself at His feet, for none can perish there. 
come to the mercy seat and know life in Christ. This is a big wish. It's a big ask. But God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. And that is my goal. So I've preached Christ to you. I've presented Christ to you. Finally, I would want to commend Christ to you. I'd want to commend Christ to you. The Lord saved me in 1973, not just before some of you were born, but before some of your parents were born. And the Lord graciously saved a Christ-hating, foul-mouthed, arrogant, screwed-up human being uh, by grace alone, and no one will ever be able to convince me of anything else. It's what Scripture teaches, and it's what I know. He saved me by grace alone, and I've walked with him now for 48 years. And I, could, I can totally understand someone thinking, oh, what a shame. It was, it was a, a good point till you patted yourself on the back and talked about how you've walked with Christ for 48 years. If anyone thought that, you would totally misunderstand me. When I say I've walked with Christ for 48 years, that's all about him. That is all to the glory of him. Were it left to me, if there was any way to get lost, I would have gotten lost. If there was any way to fall away, I would have done it. So I can commend Christ to you. That I still walk with Him is all about Christ. I can commend to you Jesus Christ and tell you that He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is full of grace and of truth. He's absolutely faithful in every sense of the word. I would be lost without him. And so I commend him to you. I preach him to you. I present him to you. I commend him to you. Do you know him? Do you know Christ? Well, then adore him and pray that God fill your heart with passion and ardor to know him better and seek him and to explore all the riches that are in Christ Jesus, the untrackable riches that are in Christ. If you don't know him, then I would urge you, flee to him, come to the mercy seat, cast your down, yourself down at the feet of Jesus and plead for God's mercy. Trust in Christ. Come to Christ. Let these words ring in your ears as I'm parted from you. Just take a moment to think about this, finish any notes, and then I will close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your dear Son. We think of your words in the Mount of Transfiguration where the apostles were struck to the ground by a, a, a peak at the glory of Christ. And you said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The celebrity of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, the name above every name. We thank you so much for the knowledge you've given us of him. All of us who know him Praise you for your grace in giving us to him and giving him for us and to us and all you've done in us by him and all you will do with us. We praise Jesus and we pray for anybody who's found his way in not knowing Christ, any man, woman, or child, that you lead that one to look to this magnificent Savior 
and to trust in him and to have life in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.